Welcome back to another episode of the Sly Hooper Podcast, brought to you by the Blue Wire Hustle Podcast Network. It is, like I mentioned last week, an all-Sixers episode. Now, I know what you're thinking. Oh, are they going to talk about the Sixers and praise them all podcast? Is it going to be a Sixers love fest? Nope. Uh, if there is any fan base who has a love-hate relationship with their team, none give a better example than the Philadelphia 76ers fan base. We love and hate our team at the same time. We get frustrated with them. We boo the shit out of them when they don't play well at home. There's a civil war among fans about certain players, etc., etc. So, it's not all praise, but of course the Sixers are the number one seed in the Eastern Conference, and I wanted to talk about that because they are my team. And so I brought on another 76er fan, another teammate of Blue Wire Hustle, David Arroyo. He is the co-host of There's a Lot Going On a podcast that is also on the Blue Wire Hustle Podcast Network. And he's an East Coast 76er fan, born and raised in Philly. And so it's not often that me, as somebody who grew up on the West Coast and became a Sixer fan, gets to talk with a Sixer fan who is right in the middle of everything. The, that city is amazing. It's one of the places I want to go to and visit one day. Especially when, you know, everything returns back to normal. But uh, it was a great conversation. We kind of talk about his fandom growing up. We talk about what it was like for him. uh, Basically witnessing the process in real time in the heart of where it was happening. While I got to watch it from afar. And then we get into the season. Uh, Joel Embiid's MVP season. Ben Simmons having a bounce back. Tobias Harris, playoff fears, all that good stuff. And he hit me with a doozy when it came to the unpopular opinion section. I have done four of these now, including David. And he actually hit me with an unpopular opinion that made me audibly react. So, without further ado, here's our conversation about the Sixers with Mr. David Arroyo. I have been waiting to do an episode like this on the Sly Hooper pod for a minute now. Um, it's not often that I get a East Coast Philadelphia 76er fan. Not only that, lives in Philly, the heart of it, the heart of this sports town. And uh, being that I grew up on the West Coast my whole life I and became a Sixer fan that way, this is going to be an interesting dynamic. But joining me on the pod today is David Arroyo. A colleague of mine at Blue Wire Hustle, he is the host of There's a Lot Going On, uh, there's the A Lot Going On podcast, and basically he talks Philly sports, and he, like me, is also in the, in the radio industry. So, uh, David, first of all, thank you for joining the show, and uh, how are you doing? Uh, thanks for having me. You know, it's it's just another day here. Uh, it, there's snow on the ground, it's freezing cold, and just hoping the uh, Sixers get a win tonight. Yeah, um, the Sixers have been doing a lot of winning. So uh, before we get into what has been 
really one of the if you want to compare this season to last season it's literally night and day and I'm sure the stress levels and the enjoyment of this team is just through the roof compared to last year let's start with this I want to get your background on one your earliest memories as a Sixer fan you obviously live in Philadelphia so I don't need you to explain how you became a Sixer fan but you know, just give us a little background on your fandom and, uh, you, you know, some of your earliest memories as a fan and, uh, you know, why why follow this weird and painfully frustrating and just weird team? <laughs> so I, I would say, you know, being born when I was born, I was born in the mid to late 90s. And, you know, growing up in Philadelphia, it's very much a obviously like Philadelphia loves their sports, right? But they there's a certain affinity for like the Eagles and at the time the Phillies were like incredible like they you know they won the 08 World Series they mm-hmm. they were the talk of the town but right before all of that obviously was when Allen Iverson was on the team he was doing his thing and it, it just sparked this love of the game for me the the thing I most vividly remember in terms of what made me love the Sixers was uh, during a regular season game, I, it was, I don't remember the exact year. It was like 03 or 04. They were playing the Washington Wizards. You might know the highlight once I describe it. But there is an inbounds play with the game tied uh, at 100 and something on both sides. Mm-hmm. And the ball was stolen on the inbounds by Allen Iverson. He runs it the other way and lays it in with like point whatever to Iverson go. And stole the ball. Iverson yeah, stole that exact the ball. Game. Yep. Yeah. And so, like, I, I remember vividly that exact game, and that was the moment where I really, like, became a Sixers fan. And then, you know, over the years, you know, as they got rid of Iverson, I remember where I was when they traded Iverson. I was Me too. In a, I was in a restaurant. Like, we were going out to eat, and I looked up at the TV, and I saw Allen Iverson's been traded, and I was just – I was shocked as a eight-year-old, however old I was. And, you know, just over time, being invested in the team and – and really wanting to see them do well, you know, through the Evan Turner years and Thaddeus Young, Michael Carter Williams, you know, there was all these guys who playing all the old hits really... right now. <laughs> they were none of those guys right were ever really that good, but they they made me I felt endeared to the team because they felt very scrappy. They felt very yeah. Philadelphia. And even now, this current iteration of the team, right? Despite the talent on the team the most talented guys feel very scrappy and feel very Philadelphia, which is something I've always appreciated about any Philadelphia sports team is when they feel like they embody the city in which they play in. Yeah. So that that's, this is awesome because um, you, this is great getting a perspective from a Philadelphia resident because those, those teams, uh, those uh, Iguodala, Thaddeus Young, Evan Turner, Young, Drew Holiday-led teams, they were definitely scrappy. Although, looking back on it in retrospect, and even kind of during the time, uh, Doug Collins, you know, was a little bit too archaic for me, even if it was a reprieve from <laughs> Eddie Jordan. Uh, but um, it's you're, I'm going to have to uh, stretch out my hamstrings for this podcast because I'm going to be pushing 30 in October and it's apparent we got we you know we got some young up and comers here on on the pod so I have to feel like I have to keep up <laughs> no but in all seriousness um I became I, I basically when I was 8 years old the 2001 uh season the Iversons MVP year that was pretty much branded in my head I watched 
whatever games would come on national TV. I didn't have the luxury, of course, of living in Philadelphia and getting to watch Mark Zumoff uh, call games every day like you did. So I, so while I didn't see the Iverson stole the ball call and all that, um, I would try to watch every national game I could growing up. I felt like I was one of the last in my generation, I guess, that would read the sports section in the newspaper. As a kid, I would go out to the driveway every day to check the uh, box scores in the NBA standings. And, you know, I would get the sports section. My brother would get the comic section. And then my dad would be mad because we wouldn't put the newspaper back how it was. <laughs> and that was and that was a never ending cycle. But um. Yeah, through the Iverson years, and I remember exactly where I was too the day he got traded. It was December. It was a uh, December, I believe, and I was sitting in a hotel in Bakersfield, California, because uh, some of my family was visiting, and I saw it on Sports Center, and I was just sitting there shocked, and you know, my jaw just dropped. And then, of course, you know, you go to school that following week, and you know, your friends are freaking out, giving you crap, just like, oh, my God, Iverson got traded. And, you know, of course, I obviously don't wagon hop teams or anything like that. But I followed Denver all like I followed Denver a lot um, along with the Sixers because I Allen Iverson is my dude. I have two posters of him and uh, got in trouble one time because uh, I basically messed up some articles of clothing to give myself a makeshift shooting sleeve to look like Allen Iverson <laughs> when I was a kid. So, um he he was pretty much the reason or what he was one of the main reasons why I became a basketball fan and a 76er fan. Um so through all of that, through Iverson, the Evan Turner years, the you know, Eddie Jordan, Doug Collin, Collins years where you know, the team's kind of middling. They have a lot of good to decent players, but we all knew what the end road for that team was. The process starts. And I'm just wondering, for you, living in Philadelphia, being in the heart of this, what was it? A five, Basically, I, a four-year odyssey before um, Joel Embiid makes his NBA debut, like going from when Sam Hinkie was hired in 2013 to when Joel Embiid made his debut in the 2016-17 season. What was that like? Because I'm looking at it from afar. I'm a subscriber to the Rights to Ricky Sanchez podcast. I listen to the Sixers beat and all that stuff. And so I can only feel the energy of, of what the process was like it from Philadelphia from only from afar I can only feel so much of it what was it like for you living through that in the heart of the city where this unprecedented NBA I don't even want to give it I don't want to even want to say experiment because that disparages what I believed uh, about the process which was we should have done it but uh what what was it like uh being in the center of that storm so to speak well I, I just to push back on that a little bit, I think it largely was an experiment. You know, it was this idea that in the NBA at the time, if you're bad enough to consistently get top three, five picks, you're bound to hit on a couple of them and you're bound to then have stars. But, you know, up, up until that point, that's not how teams did it. You know, teams would, they would be good for a time. And then all of a sudden it was like, oh, well, someone got hurt and now we're bad. A la like the Spurs when they got Tim Duncan. Mm. So, I think the idea to do it was novel 
it obviously has it's not as novel now that we've seen the Sixers do it. But I, I remember it was specifically fairly controversial, if you will, especially amongst sports radio talk. This yeah, idea that well, it was it was this idea that you know you had some promising young pieces and you blew it up for what what may not actually turn into a championship. And that's still obviously there's the potential for that to be seen. And it, if you were on my Twitter at the time, I was pretty confused at what they were doing, you know, trading Drew Holiday, someone who I saw as a pretty valuable piece moving forward, you know, blowing up the the surrounding pieces around that drafting Nerlens Noel, Michael Carter Williams. It, it, a lot of the moves didn't make sense, but as time went on, you started to see the vision a little bit more. And I, I mean, I bought into the process. I, I knew what it was going to be. I knew the struggle that was going to be watching a team as bad as the one was going to be that they were going to field. And, you know, over time, I, I think what became fun for me as a fan and the people who I knew that were fans, we got invested into prospects that, realistically one never played for the Sixers but two as you got closer to the draft you were able to have these pretty interesting debates about who you actually want on the team because I I remember before the Embiid draft you know all year the discussion was Andrew Wiggins Andrew Wiggins Andrew Wiggins and then they don't get the number one pick so now it becomes well who are they going to take at three and me and some people I knew were pretty strong Joel Embiid supporters and believers yep. to the point where, you know, we we fought pretty hard to be, you know, that's the guy you got to take at number three. And there was some discussion of some other players who could have gone at three. I don't remember if that was the Dante Exum draft or if that was a different draft, but I remember he was somebody who was pretty hotly debated about, oh, well, maybe, you know, they need a guard. They already have Nerlens Noel. But I felt pretty strongly that Joel Embiid, if he wasn't the best player in the draft, he was the second best player in that draft. And if he's there at number three, you got to take him. Mm-hmm. And that's I remember really... on my old Twitter account, um, on my previous Twitter account, I tweeted – um, before the draft, I was like, if I were the Cavs, I would take Joel Embiid number one. Just seeing his progress from the start of Kansas to what he ended up being before he got his back injury and then the foot injury later in draft workouts, I was like, it. it I always say it's akin to um, a musician who just picks up a guitar and just starts playing songs after hearing it like once or twice. It, it was really ridiculous what he was doing. Well, and, and then all that time when, you know, he wasn't playing where we were, you know, seeing Twitter, Twitter highlights of him working out in a gym. And I remember like or secondhand counts from reporters. <laughs> well, well I, I remember back to back summers. We went from, oh, look, we have a seven footer who can do in between the legs dunks to the next summer it being, oh, my God, he knows how to shoot threes. Like, who is this? this monster that we've created. And then when you actually saw him play basketball, it felt like a validation of what Sam Hinkie wanted to do. And it's unfortunate he didn't get to see out the, the remainder of, of what he had envisioned. Um, There's the debates that I think we like to have about, you know, the rigging of the NBA drafts and would the Sixers even have gotten the number one pick if Sam Hinkie was still uh, the general manager at the time. It's hard to say, you know, who, who, you know, we don't have much evidence of rigging of the draft outside of the conspiracies about Patrick Ewing. The frozen envelope. Um, exactly. And so it's hard to say, you know, what would have happened if Sam Hinkie stayed on. And I think something that that is often ignored about Sam Hinkie is, yes, he hit on some 
some great pieces. You know, Robert Covington was a great piece. TJ McConnell wasn't the best player in the world, but he was valuable to those early Sixers teams. Joel Embiid obviously was his biggest gold mine of a hit. I think it ignores largely his failures, right? Sam Hankey had some pretty big failures when he was general manager. Julio Okafor was a failure of a draft pick. You know, a lot of the, a lot of those draft picks he made outside of Joel Embiid weren't very good. He was just very good at finding those unrestricted free or those, uh, those free agents that he could then bring in uh, the undrafted guys that he could develop into. And he uh, won most of the trades he made. Yeah, he did. But yes, yes. In terms of what he was trying to do. Yes. He won the trades because he, he, he was able to accumulate assets at a rate we've never seen in the NBA before that has just now kind of become a, a bit commonplace. Yeah, that's why I said he won most of the trades he won. The process, the thought process behind those trades and what the goal was, he killed those trades for sure. And, and now I would say fans on other teams, because of what Hinky did, care way more about the idea of picks conveying than we ever have before. And I, I just remember when Mike Muscala hit that game-winning jump shot uh, <laughs> not that long ago and the 21st pick conveyed to the Sixers, how big of a deal. It was like, you know, the pick conveyed, and that's all in the blueprint and the ilk of Sam Hankey. I jumped out of my chair when Muscala hit that <laughs> game winner. It was against the Heat in the it was against the Heat in the bubble. It was like one of the last games of the year, and I was like, it, it, and obviously it was like if the Thunder win, the pick conveys to the Sixers. And when Muscala hit that game winner, I, I could not believe it, considering, you know, he was he was a brief Sixer for, you know, a minute there, but uh, still helping out the uh, still helping out the Sixers. I will say um, push. I, I do want to push back a little bit on focusing on Hinky's draft failures. I think it's just one of those things where every GM has misses. And I think the ultimate goal was, you know, how many bites at the apple do you get? What can you find on the margins? And so for me, he has misses. The Jaleel Okafor pick was bad. And also I felt like a dummy because, you know, I didn't like the pick, but then I saw him do his spinny twirly moves in uh, <laughs> the summer league. And I was still kind of a Duke fan. So I still, I saw uh, Okafor in college and I was like okay he he's a dinosaur post player but man some of the passes he makes out of and then it turns out he's just not a good passer it was just you know the college stuff but uh he definitely had some misses but I will say I think in terms of the overall goal and ultimate goal he did have some second round hits he did there's a lot of former process sixers that are thriving now on a ton different teams. So I think they're everywhere. They're everywhere. Uh, Jeremy Grant, Christian Wood, um, you know, TJ Sampson had a Jakar Sampson had a brief. Well, he's still trying to find his way in the league, but he had some He had some uh, rotation minutes for Indiana last year. Um, Robert Covington, of course, sick. I mean, as you know, it, w- it was a huge civil war about Robert Covington among Sixer fans for a long time uh, <laughs> during his uh, during his time in Philadelphia. I remember I hosted a Sixers podcast briefly for a blog that I used to write for. And it was one of those things where it was a podcast where it was two Sixer fans hosting it. But like, just basketball wise, we never saw eye to eye, so we'd always argue about Robert Covington, and that was just one of the things that stuck out to me about it. But um, yeah, man. Uh, just just to go back for a second, I I think you're right in terms of your overall evaluation of Sam Hinkie because his goal was to 
was to how many of these top five, top 10, top three, how many chances can we get at a blue chip type player? Mm-hmm. I'm just saying when you have those chances, you need, I think you needed to be a little more successful at picking those players than he ultimately was, you know, yeah. Nerland's Noel, he is a really good defensive player, but is limited offensively. Michael Carter Williams, no matter how great he played. And to be honest, he didn't even play that great when he won rookie of the year. He just had so much volume that he won the award. It was all counting stats pretty much. Exactly. And I think he needed to be a little more successful in that regard. And I think Hinky, again, I love Sam Hinky. I believed in what he was doing. I also think though, there was a failure on his part in terms of bringing in veteran talent who wasn't going to contribute to championship team anyway just to teach these guys what it was like to be professionals in the league. And it ended up helping a lot of those guys not having their minutes taken away because they were able to develop. But I I think they could have benefited a little bit from having that leadership that they then didn't get until, you know, that 2017, 18 playoff run. Yeah. Sam Hinkie definitely had uh, some flaws and, you know, obviously with the whole it's basically kind of a cult now (laughs) if i'm being completely honest and once you reach once you reach that level of basically cult status they people will love to gloss over um you know some of the mistakes hinky made and i'm certainly guilty of that because i've been one so living on the west coast all i really get all i really got was in terms of television wise and how the process was covered was nationally. And I just get mad at that because I'd be reading Liberty, Liberty ballers and whatever else that whatever other medium that was coming out of Philadelphia. And obviously, you know, people who were not forward thinking, but realizing this current iteration of this team was going nowhere that we needed something different. And that was the main thing for me. It was like always, I always want, something different a funny thing about that the process so the 2012 2013 season was my 21st birthday uh, i turned uh my birthday's in october Same. so um oh sick um i was born on the 25th so uh um, october 10 10 oh okay okay um so uh it was my 21st birthday and my roommate my best friend to this day um got me a drew holiday jersey and I obviously I loved it. Um, I was wearing it whenever I watched Sixer games. And then later that summer in 2013, Sam Hinkie gets hired. Drew Holiday gets traded on a on a draft day. And I remember just being extremely mad because Drew Holiday would and Andre Iguodala were my two favorite Sixers on the team. Well, a lot there were a lot of likable guys on that team, but I a really lot. loved Drew Holiday. And um, so I was like, wow, this jersey lasted, what, like six months? But then, like, (laughs) after you settle down and, you know, you take off your fan goggles and stuff and you start to assess, you're just like, okay, I get what we're doing. I guess I'm going to – I guess I'm for it um, as long as we reach our ultimate goal. And look where we are now. And um, I remember I have this blog in front of me right now. I used to – you know, do, did a little dabbling in writing a little bit, but uh, I wrote a post-draft night reaction to the 2014 draft where I was hoping Embiid would fall to the Sixers. Uh, a little excerpt here. Um, let's see. We're, let's see. Uh, 
The Sixers have had had one of the best drafts last night. It was no secret the Sixers would have liked to have Andrew Andrew Wiggins, but the Cavs ruined those plans. That was the big thing at the time if the Sixers had the number one pick. Wiggins was kind of rumored. But um, so with both gone, the Sixers had to take the big man, Joel Embiid, with the number three pick, who was already at, oh, blah, 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 blah. And then basically my assessment was Embiid has the highest potential out of anyone in the draft. The crazy thing is he's only played basketball for four years at that point, and he got better at every game at Kansas before going down with the back injury. Fluid, uh, fluid, and that's all you're looking for at seven-footers. Embiid moves like a guard, long wingspan, and a good offensive skill set already, but still needs more work on it. Sixers got a steal no matter the risk, and he could be the next superstar big man. It... It's really incredible that we're at this point now where the Sixers are 20 and 11 in the and first in the Eastern Conference. So um before we dive completely into this season, Mr. Arroyo, if you what were your expectations coming off of a year where we saw a Frankenstein roster with 10 power forwards, a lot of guys who like to operate in the same spots in the floor as our two best players? And what were your expectations going into this year after falling ass backwards into Daryl Morey and a good coach in Doc Rivers? And uh, have they exceeded your expectations or have they mildly met your expectations? What's your feeling on this season so far? So first of all, I just want to comment real quick on the Daryl Morey comment. It, it, no organization hires in a weirder process. They hired Facts. Doc Rivers then they hired the front office around Elton Brand, and then Daryl Morey became available. And so now they have the guy to lead everything. It, it just makes no sense how they lucked into that situation. But I, I digress. It's it's the weirdest organization in pro sports. But I mean, um, I guess the result is the result, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I, I'll take it. It's just yeah. very weird how we got here. Oh, yeah, um, for sure. I would I would say my expert I remember exactly what I said on the podcast. I thought they would be in terms of the regular season, right? I didn't think Embiid and specifically was going to play enough games for them to be a one or a two seed. So I ended up thinking they'd probably end the season as the three seed because I thought that Brooklyn and I thought that there was another team. I don't remember if it was I think I had Boston in the four, so it might have been Miami. Uh, I thought those teams would be better regular season teams that they'd probably won it a little bit more in the regular season. The Sixers did, and they'd probably sit and beat a lot in order to, to be ready come playoff time. Mm -hmm. So I, I would say in terms of what I expected and where they are, yeah, they're higher in the standings, but they're about what I expected them to be. When I, I look at the rest of the Eastern conference, because you look Miami's underperformed Boston has underperformed a little bit from what people are were expecting. Brooklyn now has James Harden, which we weren't sure if he was going to be a Sixer, if he was going to be a net, if he was going to go somewhere else. So in terms of how the Sixers have played, they've played about what I expected. Now, at times, it's been dazzling what I've, what I've experienced, you know, ever since they didn't trade Ben Simmons for James Harden. He's been a more aggressive and different offensive player he's than I expected. Yeah, he's, he's been fantastic. You know, I, I knew what I was getting on the defensive end. It, I've just gotten a lot more offensively than I had anticipated. And in terms of what I expected from Joel Embiid, listen, I expected him to be very good. You know, t whatever his normal averages are, 27 and 10. 
I did not expect MVP level season from Joel Embiid. And maybe that's on me for not being enough of a believer, but I just didn't think, I I thought we had seen the best of Joel Embiid in whatever year that was, uh, 27, 18 or 18, 19, 19. And and I thought that was the best Joel Embiid could be. And if we got that Joel Embiid, I thought, okay, they might be able to win the East. If he's playing like an MVP, they have a chance to contend for the title. And it's because no other team can match up with a a seven foot center of his caliber. Not even the teams who have other good seven foot players, you know, Anthony Davis, historically, um, I was there one of the times Anthony Davis and Joel Embiid played each other. And, Frankly, Anthony oh, one Davis. One of the many times Joel Embiid destroyed Anthony Davis. Well, not exactly. many. They, have, they don't play often, but whenever they do, Embiid owns him. <laughs> and he does that to every center in the league. There's no player in the league who can guard Joel Embiid. And so when he's playing at an MVP level, that elevates you to another level. Now, I didn't think, I, I thought this team would fit a lot better than last year's team did. And in terms of the the statistics they're about as good on both offense as they're about as good on offense as they were last year and they're actually worse on defense than they were last year yeah. so in terms of if you're looking at the raw stats are they better no but when you actually watch them play basketball they they fit much better together and i'm excited of the direction of the team i i just have some apprehension still on if they can win the title all of that is totally fair the playoff aspirations and or the playoff aspirations, what our prospects look like. Totally agree with that. Um, I was, I'm so full disclosure. I was a big, well, you already, I already mentioned it, but I was a big Joel Embiid believer. And I remember I said, I said on my podcast, um, well, I have two, but I, I said on both of them that this was, if I were a betting man, if I bet on sports, which thank God I don't, cause I'd probably be broke. I would, <laughs> uh, I would bet, some money on Embiid MVP odds because I just thought it was so clear to me last year that this roster that the roster was so ill-fitting and look 10% of it maybe 15% of it I love arbitrary percentages if you want to put some of that blame on Embiid for how poorly the Sixers played last year okay fair but I really do believe that like the majority of why this team was bad was one, Ben Simmons got hurt towards the end of the year after he was playing some of the best basketball of his career. But when you have Embiid kicking it out to Al Horford, who is, you know, jab-stepping and then bricking a three, or when you give it to Josh Richardson on a dribble handoff and he doesn't pull up from three and then he dribbles in, he dribbles in and takes a bullshit mid-ranger, like, it – it just became apparent that the roster didn't fit. And we saw how it worked. We saw what worked the previous two years, you know, when they had shooting, when it was the Covington, Reddick, Sarich, Simmons, and Bead lineup. And then obviously the Jimmy Tobias, Reddick, Simmons, and Bead lineup was literally destroying teams and posted one of the best offensive ratings in NBA history. Um, so it became apparent to me that this team, that Maury, when he started you know, going to work and basically undoing everything Elton did the previous summer. I was very bullish on Embiid becoming an MVP. And I guess we could just, we could just get into Embiid's talk now because Embiid talk now, because I knew he would take a step forward. I, I do think I always believed that he had the potential to be 
one of the best, if not the best player in the league, because I already I believe in him defensively. I think he's the, the most impactful defender in the league when when right. And, you know, his shooting, his shooting touch was something I always believed in. I always pushed back on the notion when people complain that Embiid shouldn't be when people say that Embiid shouldn't be shooting threes. We can argue about volume, but I am not in the business of putting a uber talent like Embiid in a box. I would rather just let him figure it out and see how good he can be. And he's been that. So let me give you, I'm sure you already know, but I'm going to give the listeners the ridiculous stat line Embiid has posted so far. 30 points per game, 11 rebounds per game, three assists per game. And honestly, the assist, the assist to turnover ratio doesn't do his passing justice. If you watch every minute of a Sixer game, you... Me, I think me and you could agree that Embiid has been way more comfortable with double teams this year, and he's had a lot of hockey assists, or even non-hockey assists, where he just makes the simple pass and then a swing, swing, swing shot. He's shooting... He, he, he's oh, been sorry, better... Ahead. Real quick, he's been better at passing in the post. I think he still has a lot of room to grow there, but yeah, agreed, it's been... Agreed. It's been worlds better than it's been in years past. Yes, agreed. He still has He still has a lot of room to grow. He still throws some lazy passes, and... You just, it, but it's not as apparent this year. Um, 53.6% field goal, 39.7% three-point percentage, and he's shooting 85% from the free throw line on almost 12 attempts per game, which is by far a career high, while also being an all-league defender. I, This is a treat to watch like this is some special stuff we are watching right now and this was the reason why you know we tanked basically the why we went through the process to get a player like this guy and I'm just I've just been blown away he's dribbling like a seven foot guard he's making dribble pull-up jumpers at an ungodly percentage right now his mid-range is ridiculous. It's, it's really Dirk levels of efficiency so far this season, not comparing him to Dirk, obviously, but just in terms of shooting percentages from mid-range this year, it's Dirk-esque. And he's become a crunch time guy now. And I'm just, I just, I'm just so blown away by Embiid. Um, so as far as the MVP race is concerned, um, obviously – I would assume me and you, we have Embiid at the top, but what have you seen from Embiid this year specifically that has struck, that has struck you? What has stuck out to you about this season we are seeing from is really an all time season so far from a center. Well, real quick, before I go too far, you had mentioned you're not a betting man. I was not either before this season. And then after a game or two, I had a friend send me a code so I could sign up for a betting app solely to bet on Joel Embiid to win MVP. <laughs> I currently so could that's cash your first out, bet. <laughs> well, I could currently cash out my twenty dollar bet and make thirty dollars on it. Now, if I ride this out and he ends up winning MVP, I'll win two hundred and forty dollars. So that's why I'm I'm holding strong. You know, diamond hands. We're, diamond we're going hands straight here. to the moon. <laughs> So like like for me right when I watch Joel Embiid this year it's it's more he's he's shooting efficiently right in he's always been a fairly efficient player but the thing he's gotten extremely good at is those you know he he as big as he is right he's not a traditional back you down center he really likes to face guys up yep. 
and he's gotten deadly at facing guys up, throwing a jab step or two, creating enough space just to shoot over top of guys. And just his touch has been buttery smooth. And so when, when he's shooting that efficiently from the mid range where a lot of guys don't shoot particularly efficiently, it's hard to guard him. And then once that shot starts falling, he starts to take you inside and he's become adept, obviously at drawing fouls. I mean, he's, he's drawing fouls at a hardened level rate and it's just, it it's a, a, a way of playing and his IQ is, I guess what I'm trying to get at his basketball IQ is at the highest level. I think we've seen it. And that's both on the offensive and defensive end. Now, the one interesting thing, right? depending on what teams they end up playing come playoff time, he, as good as he is defensively, it, you there's real question marks about who you would guard, right? So like if they played the Brooklyn Nets, I talked about this on my podcast this week, but if they were to play the Brooklyn Nets, who does he guard? Because they don't have a traditional center. I don't know if he's quick enough to guard a, a Kevin Durant. If he's guarding a Jeff Green, that might take him out of the paint. And so because of his some physical limitations there may be series where he is can be neutralized defensively unless the Sixers change how they're going to play defense which I think is a possibility but uh, in terms of how he's played so far I mean he's impactful on defense he makes it hard to score in the paint he will bully you down low there's not a center who can stop him there and every now and then he'll step out and shoot some threes now I don't want him shooting you know, seven threes a game. But if he's shooting four threes a game, all that does is open up the floor a little bit more for Ben Simmons. So it doesn't hurt the team in any real way. Yeah, right. And uh, just just for uh, context on the mid-range numbers, I just pulled them up on cleaning the glass. Um, on all mid-rangers, he's shooting 51%, which would put him in the 83rd percentile. Long mid-range jumpers, which is basically 14 feet, in between 14 feet in the three-point line, 56 <laughs> percent yeah it's kind it's kind of ridiculous what he's doing and i like the the point you brought up about his face-up game too real quickly um is also is also really interesting because he is a face-up player but now he's somehow he's i think he's always kind of you know separated being a backup guy and then a face-up guy and now I think the blend is starting to become more apparent he's blending in his face up with backing down somebody right and because of his improved handle as well and it, you could just see like people we've seen it in a lot of games this year the defense is just literally frustrated every time uh, whether Embiid scores or whether the refs call a foul you can just see that they they're just bewildered at how to stop this man. It's it's jarring. But uh, what were you gonna say? Well, uh, just to go on that point real quick, I, I think you know it's how do you guard that? Because I think what has helped a little bit in his assist to turnover ratio is the fact that he's facing up so much. Because when he's in that face up position, he can, he see can the scan exactly, and so you know he can see who might be the help defender. He can start his back down, and as soon as the back down starts. He, he can know where to go with the ball. And, you know, I, I still think there are times where he's a little bit lazy with the basketball. Now, yeah. do I think that's going to happen through the postseason? Probably not. I expect Doc to clean that up a lot. Um, but j just in terms of what he's been able to do uh, in terms of the advanced stats, my understanding of the advanced stats right now, he's about on par advanced statistically wise with Steph Curry the year he was the unanimous MVP. 
And so if he maintains that sort of pace and can shoot like that come postseason, there's literally not a player in the NBA that can guard him. He, he, he'd be exactly the same way we talk about how no one can guard Kevin Durant, which is just factually true. No <laughs> yeah. one would be able to guard Joel Embiid. Yeah, um, it's what are you talking about the uh, stat where players who average 30 points but have like a 66 or whatever true shooting percentage because I I saw that too and um, it's funny because Steph is my other my second favorite player behind Iverson and Embiid is shooting up that ranking really quickly though Um, he's already been one of my favorite athletes but this season man it's it's been special and uh, when and it sounds crazy when you say, oh, statistically compared to Steph Curry. Well, look at sometimes – I just want to take screenshots sometimes during Sixer games when there's like two guys doubling Embiid and then the other three defenders have their head turned like with a foot in the paint ready to pounce also. There's literally like five people at once sometimes trying to stop this man. And – like we saw against the Bulls, sometimes you could put three or four dudes on him and it just doesn't matter. Wendell Carter Jr. is not a small man. And there were just possessions where Embiid literally just moved him out of the way and scored. And it was jarring to see. The physicality well, and, I, and everything has just been incredible. Well, also on the same vein, though, I think it's important to also recognize, though, what Toronto did against him. Yes, And yes. Toronto did a really good job of basically anytime you call it in the post instantly bringing a double team and trying to neutralize him as much as they possibly could. Yeah. And they, they built a very similar to what they do against Giannis Giannis wall, where they just weren't going to let him get a full head of steam. They were never going to let him get into rhythm and they were just able to throw a lot of bodies at him, which is kind of what you need to do. You can't throw, you know, one guy at him all night or yep. even two guys, you need to throw a multiple different guys constantly all night um the raptors some... have always historically defended Embiid well and we apparently no matter if they're in toronto or tampa we just can't win a road game against the raptors i it's kind of it's kind of uh, ridiculous but well i i think it's fair too to, to give nick nurse a ton of that credit oh I mean, yeah best coach I, in I, the league, argue, I think yeah that that's kind of what i think too so like when that's who you're dealing with you're gonna have some of those nights he's not oh, gonna yeah. get them every time but he'll get you sometimes yep um before uh I don't want to spend we could literally spend an hour talking about Joel Embiid but uh we I want to move on to the other star on the team Mr. Ben Simmons. Uh um, I thought you were going to say Tobias Harris. We we will talk about Tobias Harris in the year he's having but I wanted to bring up Simmons because once again for the seems like the third year in a row now since his rookie year aside from his rookie year he kind of started out slow and, you know, fans, especially me, well, not me in particular, because I, I will defend Simmons. I've been a Simmons guy more than other people have. Um, but, you know, there is a level of frustration that happens when, you know, a star player starts off slow and then Ben finally gets going. And it seemed to happen again this year. Now, I, I want to be fair to Ben because I have been very vocal about how I've hated his offense, how I hated his offensive approach to start the year. But I do want to mention that he was coming off of a back injury and also a knee injury that he had surgery on. So he didn't look as explosive to start the year, but there were it just seemed like he was trying to find his place offensively early on defensively all year. He's been 
top notch, one of the best in the league, top three defender, I think. I think he is the best defender in the league. See, th- this comes to a debate of do you value perimeter defense or do you value the most important position defensively, which is center? And that's where I'd say Joel Embiid, I think, is more important defensively than Ben is. They're both important, but I would take elite rim protection and shutting off the paint. But you could go either or. But anyway, Simmons was playing great all year on the defensive end. Offensively, he was finding he was trying to find his way. There were a lot of times where he would drive into the paint and just instantly kick it out without even looking at the rim. There just seemed to have been no progress offensively. But since the James Harden trade, he has been spectacular. So he has been averaging 17 points per game, over 17 points per game, eight rebounds per game, eight assists per game. More importantly, six free throw attempts per game at 70% shooting from the free throw line. And he has seemed to just have found this switch where he could just mentally say to himself, I'm going to attack all the time. I'm 6'10", I'm 240, I can. I have a good handle. If I could just get to the rim and get contact, I will be getting easy points at the line. And that seems to be what he's doing. And now he's starting to blend in, blend in his drives with his passing. And he even, he even has a little hook shot now, which he used during his rookie year, which is the other weird thing about Ben Simmons. He would shoot more his rookie, he shot more his rookie year, tried more hook shots and all that his rookie year. And as the year's gone on, he just progressively stopped doing that for some reason. But now that hook shot's back and it's, Honestly, the first offensive scoring move from Ben where I'm just like, okay, that's a comfortable shot. I feel comfortable with him taking that shot. Like, it goes in a decent amount now. Because early on in the year, post-ups, scoring post-ups with Ben Simmons was a disaster. But now it's good. Um, so what have you seen from Ben Simmons so far? Do you have any remorse or not or sellers, non-sellers remorse, I guess, if that's the correct term? Um, cause we didn't trade him for Harden. It, how are you feeling now with Simmons and how are you, have you felt since the whole James Harden trade was settled and resolved and the Sixers were obviously no longer in the running? Uh, I would say Ben Simmons and I, uh, he doesn't know me personally, but I would say we've had a, a complicated relationship in terms of how I feel about him because <laughs> I think he has shown the ability, right, to be one of the best players in the league, specifically defensively. I've already said, I think he's the best defender in the league. I think ultimately, as important as shutting off the pain is, what you need late in games is a guy who can shut down the best player on the perimeter because it becomes a jump shooting game. And I, I would say him and Kawhi Leonard are the two best at doing that in the NBA, not even close. Yep. And, and so to me, his defense is there. He's an elite defender. And so now it comes down to what can he do offensively? And you mentioned it. He, he's been way more aggressive in the paint. That hook shot has been very good. He should just embrace the fact that he's right-handed and shoot more with his right hand, but I digress. And <laughs> and like his, his free throw shooting, you know, the fact he's comfortable enough with driving to want to take contact and then go to the free throw line, he's converting. It makes it then hard to play hack a Simmons and just send him to the free throw line to try and win games. So it's been promising. I think what is so frustrating about Ben Simmons for a lot of people, myself included, is that if he had 
any sort of jump shooting whatsoever, even if it was just the mid-range game, they would be the favorites to win the NBA championship, and it wouldn't even be particularly close. He wouldn't even have been discussed in a James Harden trade if he could shoot the basketball in any way, shape, or form. And just keeping the defense honest, you know, even if he was only shooting like 33% from three, just shooting those would keep the defense a little more honest. And I think that's what's so frustrating because we see how great he could be. You know, he... He would and we be, see him work on the jumper all the time. Like it's not like he doesn't work it. on it. It's like I know we get sick of the videos and stuff like that, and it's frustrating as hell when he doesn't shoot in the game still to this point. I've I've kind of given up on that of him ever shooting, um, really. But the fact that he practices it is so mind blowing to me. And it doesn't look bad. Like looks it, fine. It it looks I mean, it looks awkward. Like the the form isn't perfect, but it looks easy. It looks easy enough to use for him. Like I I just don't understand. But uh, yeah, and, anyway. and that's what's so incredibly frustrating is we see it all the time, and it's just like please just shoot a little bit more. Because again, I truly believe he's a great basketball player right now. He's he may be an all star when they announce the reserves, but in my opinion, if he shot the basketball more and did it at an even average clip he would be a top 10 basketball player right now because there's no other player other than maybe Kawhi Leonard with his combination of defense and then if he had that offense. And granted, I think they can win a championship even if he's not shooting at that rate, if they have the right pieces around him. I just think it's it's incredibly frustrating knowing they would probably be a lock to win the title if he did those things. Well, it kind of, I mean, not to bring up old wounds for both of us, but it kind of goes back to the Fultz, tr- the Fultz uh, draft, right? Because that was the one thing this team was missing was that elite perimeter shot creator. And if we didn't hit on that, we would have to rely on Simmons to develop into that. And like I said, I've given up on him being a shooter of any kind. Um, especially if he doesn't switch to his right hand. It's amazing how we have all just progressively started coming to Kevin O'Connor's side on this theory because he was the one true lone wolf on this hill. <laughs> and now everybody's kind of shifting over to that. But um, the Fultz trade was really detrimental. The Obviously not keeping Jimmy Butler was also a huge deal because it – it whenever we had that elite perimeter shot creator whether it was for Jimmy Butler for six months um it took the pressure off Simmons to not be what he wasn't but um now it seems like he's starting to figure some stuff out and how to be more effective he's doing the dirty work more now um he's literally inhaling people on the defensive end like the Portland game is one of my biggest it was one of my biggest examples that I'm going to use from now on just the fact that Dame Lillard went off in the, in the first half against us. And then in the second half, Simmons just completely erased him from the game. That, that should be on a defensive highlight reel for everybody, but it is definitely, it is definitely frustrating that we are at this point and we still don't have any noticeable progress with the jumper, but 
He is using his left hand more on layups, which is also another gripe I've had with Simmons. Um, he always wants to go back to his right hand, even when the situation calls for an easy scoop with the left hand. Um, it just seems like he doesn't have touch with that left hand as much as the right hand. Um, it's It's been encouraging, though, because, like you said, he's, att- we're, he's attacking the rim more. He's shooting more free throws, and I think that's the pathway for Simmons as a scorer. Because I agree with you. I do think Embiid and Simmons can win a title together. I've always fought back on the notion that they're this awful fit. Are they a perfect fit offensively? No. Can it work? Yes, because they're talented. And you got to put the right pieces around them. And Simmons and Embiid have actually clicked more this year than I've ever seen them. And uh, they they – Simmons times his cuts well now off of Embiid post-ups. Embiid is now active. There are there have been games recently where Embiid is actively trying to get Simmons involved offensively. Like there, like there are a few times where you see him like point to Simmons to like get on the block and take advantage of the mismatch. Um, just stuff like that, little stuff like that in the flow of a game you see. Um, but you know, ever since the James Harden trade Ben Simmons has been spectacular he looks healthy and with Embiid and Simmons on the court that defense is something special and uh it it'll be interesting to see um it'll be interesting to see how that plays out going forward especially in the playoffs where I still have my huge concerns about this team um one of them one more thing on on Simmons real quick is I I think too the other reason he's been more valuable this year on offense is he doesn't seem allergic anymore to setting screens. Yes. And the the fact he has embraced that a little bit more, an off-ball role where he's the, the roller on the pick and roll, has opened up his offensive game a little bit more and has yep. made the Sixers a better offensive team. Yep. Uh, it's amazing what happens when you add some league average guards or any type of guard that can dribble a ba- dribble a basketball, you know, crazy guys who can dribble and shoot. Who I know they existed. Crazy concept. Um, one of the other uh, concerns, I guess, if I guess if, if it's a concern, um, Tobias Harris, and it's not concern necessarily. Tobias has had a great year this year. He's obviously flowed really well under Doc. Um, he's averaging career numbers. He's averaging 28 and three and is basically a 50, 40, 90 season for Tobias. But, um, kind of, he's kind of looked like the reason why the Sixers traded for him in the first place. Now, is he worth that $180 million contract? Hell no. But he, I did one of my cases for the Sixers before the season, why I was particularly high on this team as a regular season team was, if Doc Rivers could recoup 60% of the value on Tobias Harris's contract, this team could be well off. And he's been playing like the third star on the team. Uh, He's definitely getting some all-star buzz, whether what tier you have him in terms of candidates for reserves. I kind of have him on the lower tier. I have Simmons on my personal reserve team. Um, but Tobias has been awesome this year. I am getting a little worried that he has recently stopped shooting open threes with without hesitation, uh, with the exception of yesterday, or yeah, with the exception of the Raptors game on a on Sunday. a Sunday. Yes, sorry, my days are getting mixed up. Um, but I am getting a little worried that he's slowing down on the attempts. But 
he's been really good so far this year, so I have to give Tobias props. And also, he's been a lot more feisty defensively. Um, he's he's obviously he's taken the challenge. He's obviously he's never going to be an elite defender or an above average defender, but he's big. He has length, and when he locks in, he could you know stonewall a bigger player in the post. He could stay in front of somebody for a possession. Um, so I've liked what I've seen from Tobias this year. What say you? Well, I, I think the intro. So I agree. I think Tobias Harris has looked a lot better. And the thing I keep saying about Doc Rivers now is he's the Tobias Harris whisperer. You know, he, <laughs> yep. he knows how to get the most out of Tobias Harris. I think the interesting thing about Tobias Harris, and we'll see if this continues to be true, but he's doing a lot of damage with the second unit and when he's playing these bench units. And I actually think that's a great role for him. Like yeah. when Embiid and Simmons are on the floor, you know, say one or both of them go to the bench and you keep Harris on the floor while the other team brings their bench unit in. I think Tobias Harris is a skilled enough scorer to to tear apart a lot of teams' second units. And if that continues to be his role where they use him, all I think that does is boost his confidence and continues to have him, you know, see himself in the way Doc Rivers sees him, which I think is big for Tobias Harris. I think a lot of his confidence is derived from himself. It's not necessarily from how other people see him or how other people are talking about him, even though he did make that comment yesterday about feeling that the Sixers big three has been disrespected. I think he takes a lot of, it's a lot of self-confidence. And when he doesn't see his shot falling, that's when you start to see him not shoot those threes anymore. And I think Doc yep. Rivers has has found a way to keep him engaged and confident even when he's struggling a little bit, which is super encouraging to see. Now, is he the Sixers' third best player? Yes. Is he worth the contract he got? I don't know. I, I, if they win a championship, then it's hard to argue he wasn't worth it because he would have been their third best player. And he's better than a lot of other teams' third options, with the exception, of course, of the Brooklyn Nets. Maybe the Lakers with Schroeder is a better third option. But there aren't many teams with better third options. Yeah. Um, I would also say Chris Middleton in Milwaukee. I would. He's a second option to me. So so to me, the question is... That is true. He is a second option. Um, that is true. He he is the second option on the books. My bad. Um, but, I mean, you, you're right. If they do win the championship or make the finals, we kind of do have to change our opinion on the, on the Tobias contract. I don't think he'll... I, I still don't think I would ever give him that kind of money, but it's not like I was never... A Tobias Harris fan um I liked I liked his game I liked uh I liked uh, his game with the Clippers um it's just that you know once you don't perform up to expectations like he did last year that that contract you know ends up becoming a big talking point and you know he's definitely he's definitely done a good job this year I one of my concerns with Tobias though is I still think this team lacks a huge they have a huge hole in terms of perimeter shot creation and I'm just not sure if Tobias as a as our primary half court scorer I guess in the playoffs you know when defenses get tighter you're deep into the shot clock more often and obviously you know Joel Embiid is your options one two and three but you know, if you're looking for an ISO shot from the perimeter in a cr in a pinch, 
I'm still not comfortable with Tobias being that guy. And you mentioned the uh, bench units with Tobias. Those units have been good, although they've kind of slipped back a little bit recently. Um, they need a starter on the court at all times because that this bench is so feast or famine, especially without Shake Milton. Um, he, he came back yesterday, but our, it's almost like our team needs to be perfectly healthy for everything to fall into place because – once Shake went down, there goes the bench score, and Tyrese Maxey ends up playing more like a rookie. Dwight Howard has been, aside from the last few games, has been awful for the better part of a month now. Um, Matisse Thibel is finally getting his – he's been spectacular the last for him uh, for the last month. He's been awesome defensively. He is – Shooting a little bit better from three, but uh, he's er awful on defense. He he's so bad on defense, on yeah. offense. Excuse me. I, I, I almost, I, I, I was thrown back by it for a second, <laughs> and I was like, Yeah, defense? no, no, no. De defense. He's obviously incredible, but God, his his offense is so hard to watch. Like it's almost, you I, know, you remember how Sixer fans would always, you know, clutch their chest whenever Robert Covington would drive to the basket for a layup, and how dribble drives with him were always an adventure. It is an odyssey or something bigger than an adventure with Matisse Thibel I do not know what's going to happen when he dribbles the ball <laughs> which is not a great thing to say about an NBA basketball player no it, it's not but um but he, he's so good on defense like they play they end up needing to play him some games and it, it's incredible to watch I've never seen anything like it and they've been using they've been using the two three zone a lot this year which I do like the variety now and uh having Matisse and Ben at the top of the two three zone that's just that's stupid like that you're putting the opposing ball handlers in jail pretty much because you just have two monstrous defenders at the top of the key and um it the the bench definitely needs some tinkering so I'm wondering from you are there any fringe moves you're looking at or are you still looking towards like a big fish like Beal I'm not so sure I would trade Simmons and everything for Beal like I would have Simmons and everything for Harden. Um, I'm not even sure if I would – there's still part of me that's not even sure if I would trade Ben for Beal at all just because I think Beal is a tier below Harden, and I would rather just keep Simmons at that point because while the, Beal is obviously the better player, I just don't think the difference in value is big enough for me to trade Simmons. But – are there any other fringe moves you're possibly looking at for Maury to make? Uh, any moves to the bench, which I think we need? What, do you, what are you looking at in terms of trade stuff or um, fan hopefulness w uh, in trade scenarios? So I, I don't think a big fish is in the cards. I just don't think they have the assets to get, say, a Zach Levine or a Bradley Beal. Yeah, or one thanks, of those Colangelo. guys. Yeah, yeah. One of, <laughs> to, to, to get one of those guys that that can really contribute in the way they would need. So I think it is going to be a fringe move. And the way I think about it, right, is I think Doc has been on record about, you know, he's not going to use these all bench lineups come playoff time, and it's probably Thank going God. to shrink to an eight-man rotation. So if they're running an eight-man rotation, right? Right now, we know that's going to be the five starters. You'll throw in Shake Milton as six, and then you have two open spots. I think because of how good he's played, one of those spots – may end up being Matisse Thibel, or it could be Furkan Korkmaz. I think it's going to be matchup dependent. I think the issue is I'd much rather Furkan not be that option. I want the a Corkster's more reliable. Terrible. 
I've never been a fan of his and this season hasn't really helped him in any way for me personally. And so it's going to come down to, I think they need a bomber who they can potentially get on the buyout market. You know, a guy who's just going to unconscionably chuck up threes, Mm -hmm. you know, and maybe if JJ Reddick gets bought out, he's that kind of guy. Cause I don't think he's really worth the trade price he might cost. So I think they need a three point bomber, but I also think that eighth spot if Ben isn't playing small ball five, which I don't think he should necessarily, even though I like him in those eight man bench units, I think they're going to need to get a stretch five. And I thought the Dwight Howard signing the moment they did, it didn't really make any sense. And I just think that's bore out over the season. Cause he doesn't fit well with Simmons. So then you yeah. can't play him with the bench units. He definitely doesn't fit well next to Embiid. And so where does he really fit? And so I think they need a stretch five for those bench units. That way you do have a little more versatility with playing uh, Ben Simmons with those bench units, you know, helps to stretch the floor. And then Simmons can play in the post and whoever the stretch five is can, can, you know, do his job and stretch the floor. So those are the two things to me is an unconscious bomber off the bench and a stretch five. So Nemanja Bialica, even though he <laughs> initially agreed to play for the Sixers and then turned it down to then play overseas but apparently didn't want to and ended up here in Sacramento where I live um he's been playing a bit more recently but he was recently in the doghouse um that seems to be a trade target um as well uh PJ Tucker is somebody that I really hope we could get by using the eight million dollar trade exception his salary fits snugly right under that trade exception so that should be that should be something I hope Maury would look towards, especially, you know, given the history, obviously. Although politics could play into this if Tillman Fertitta is still salty at Maury for basically ditching him and going coming here to Philly. Um, George Hill is another one that I'm looking at. Um, just somebody who is really solid, can play either position, so he's not tied to one or the other can uh, guard those positions and hit spot up threes. But yeah, uh, the Dwight Howard minutes, they were, I, so I was a little higher on the Howard signing than you were just from the standpoint of the Toronto Raptors series, as I'm sure it is for all of us is branded in our heads, not just because of a shot that will remain unspoken, but the Embiid minutes when he was off or the, the Embiid plus minus in that series has always stuck out to me. It was like minus 99 when Embiid was off the court. And then Greg Monroe in game seven played four fucking minutes and was a minus 12. <laughs> like, if if that is like that, would, so when they signed Howard, I was like, okay, this is the best backup big Embiid has had. And um, I think if we had Dwight Howard in that series, we would win that. We would win it, but win that series. But like you said, he doesn't fit well with Simmons, and um, and you kind of need three other shooters and people who can attack a closeout if you're going to play those two together, and they just don't have that because the Ben, Dwight Howard, and you know Matisse Thibel minutes when they're in the lineup together, those have been putrid, putrid offensively, and it. I just hope... I'm sure Maury knows exactly what is and what and what what he needs and what this team doesn't need and 
you know, it's already we're already more than a quarter of a way through the season. So I have no doubt he's cooking up some moves. But I really I what I'm really hoping for is getting PJ Tucker so they could play small lineups with Simmons. Um I hope they get somebody like a Nemanja Bialica who can just bomb from three and not just bomb from three, but bomb with range and George Hill. So those would be my three. Uh, those would be my three trade targets. What do you think about those? I think I like those. I think the one concern specifically with PJ Tucker, because I see the fit with George Hill and Bialica. I think the concern with PJ Tucker is his shooting's been down this year. And if he mm. is not the, the shooter he was, I would much rather develop Matisse Thibel into the shooter. Cause right now, right. The, the problem with Matisse Thibel isn't that he's not capable of hitting those shots is he'll catch it, be open and not shoot it. Mm-hmm. And that is the frustrating part with him is he, he clearly has the capability defensively to, to be one of the best two way players in the league or just a great three and D player. He just needs to shoot the three more because he's open and then he'll pass it off to someone else. Cause he's basically afraid to shoot it. And it's a, now they don't get an open shot. So I think I, PJ Tucker's a little lower on my list, but the other two guys, I, I definitely see their fit. You know, George Hill is a very capable NBA player. I've been a part of teams that have gone to the NBA finals and then Bielitsa again, he's a, he's exactly what I wanted the Sixers to get this off season. Um, cause again, I just, I wasn't high on the Howard signing from the beginning. I always thought when Embiid's not on the floor, you want to stretch five. You don't yeah. need another guy who plays like Embiid. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's definitely, uh, it's definitely borne out or bore out as the season's gone on that Dwight Howard is the Dwight Howard minutes are just frustrating. He has the worst, he has the worst slash good at the same time hands that I've seen from a player. Like he'll snag rebounds out of the air right but when he goes up for a dunk or a layup or tries to catch a lob he always fumbles the ball it's very weird and it's it's very frustrating just one of those nitpicky things you see when you watch every single minute basically of your team uh that annoy you but um let's move on to the playoffs because despite all of this and i i'm pretty sure it's safe to say no nba fan base has a love extreme love slash extreme hate relationship sometimes than like this fan base does with the Sixers I know I'm definitely part of it this team I this team is, like basically regulates <laughs> the emotions daily when the, especially when the season's going on um but they are first in the east they're 20 and 11 Brooklyn is hot on is hot on the Sixers trail though especially with this recent win streak but we are definitely we have definitely been talked about as and yes i'm saying we we've definitely been talking talked about <laughs> i'm happy as, you said that because i am a uh, i'm an anti-we and our person yeah um i i embrace the fandom you know i try not to say we but sometimes i can't help it hey i, um, I respect it um but we are considered as eastern conference contenders and i would agree with that but i still have my major flaws one of them i said in one of them i just mentioned was half court perimeter creation Let's go with uh, our opponents in the East. I noticed early in the podcast when you mentioned who you thought was going to be good going into the season. I noticed you left the Bucks off your list. I don't know if that was intentional or very okay because I'm not really scared of the Bucks either. I'm just going to be honest, and I'm saying this as somebody who was high on Giannis and high on the Bucks when they hired Mike Budenholzer. 
then I realized that maybe I just didn't want to see Jason Kidd coach <laughs> anymore because um, Bud has proven I have sold all my Bud stock, especially after last playoffs. Um, but aside from that, then, since we have established the Bucks do not scare us, who are the other contenders or even teams that scare you? Uh, if as we once we get towards the playoffs, what teams are you looking at that you're just like, oh shit? I, I'd have to imagine Brooklyn is one of the obvious ones, right? So I, I think there are four teams that could win the championship, and the Sixers are one of those four. So to me, there are three other teams that scare me. It's the Brooklyn Nets because of the matchup nightmares they pose. Now, yep. granted, they play no defense, so those games could be very high scoring, and if they get some semblance of defense, they could beat them. So the Nets are terrifying, but then in the West, the Lakers and the Clippers. To me, no other. Those are the, the four teams that can win the NBA championship this year. Okay. The the Celtics don't have a big who can guard Joel Embiid, and they're they're boring. I mean, they never go for it. Like just go for it once, and they might have ha- they might have a title right now if they just went for it. Mm-hmm. Um, Miami, I think, I, I just don't know. Like you. Tyler Hero and Duncan Robinson are complete defensive liabilities and you have to play them in a playoff series. So I, I think they would, I think they'd lose in five games. I just don't think they have the defensive talent to match up with the Sixers. Um, the Bucks, the Bucks are interesting, right? Because they're very much a prove it to me team where yeah. I've seen them multiple years now just come up short in the playoffs. And granted some of it last year is because Giannis was injured, but realistically right you go down the board and you think about matchups in that series and i think the sixers match up beautifully with them and so really it would come down to you know best players in the series i'll take joel and beat against Giannis any day of the week i think he Me would too and i i think they would win that series on that alone and if you start to go down right i think chris middleton might be better than say tobias harris and ben simmons but I like Simmons and Harris more than Drew Holiday. So it's close. And I think the Bucks are better than maybe I give them credit for. But the thing we say on all the time on our podcast is that they're frauds. They're the most fraudulent team in the <laughs> NBA year in and year out. Every single year we're told this is their year. The contenders, the Milwaukee Bucks, it's the year. Giannis the thrones, LeBron James. And what happens every single year? LeBron stays on top of the throne. Exactly. Like Giannis is, I mean, if we want to go with Greek mythology, he's Achilles. I mean, he, he, he can't shoot and all it takes is a shot in the heel and he's done with. So I, I, I'm just, wow. I, I'm not, I'm, I like Giannis. He's a very good basketball player. I don't think they can win the title. I definitely don't think they can win the East. Yeah. And uh, they, and they got to get to the Sixers. If the Sixers don't have to play the Bucks or the Nets until the Eastern Conference Finals, which is why I think the one seed could be very very important. Yeah. I I think they they would they need to get the easiest path easiest path to the finals. They need to get whatever path it is where you don't have to play the Bucks and the Nets until the Eastern Conference Finals because then I think it's a lot easier. If you have to go through both of them, I don't know if they can win the East. Yeah, the one seed is definitely very important for this team. Um, I think Mike Levin of the Rights to Ricky Sanchez podcast, those two were on, uh, Spike and Mike were on Zach Lowe's uh, podcast um, on Friday, which was like a fever dream for me because it it was a mix of my two favorite podcasts just combining into one. Um, 
I think Mike Levin said pretty much when Zach asked this question, which teams scare you in the East? The the Sixers scare me. <laughs> um, just because just because they could they could really lose to anybody. But when they're clicking and you could say that about any team, but especially this team, if things aren't clicking, they could lose to anybody. But if things are clicking everywhere, the bench, health, all of that, I think we can beat anybody in the East. Now, the team that does scare me the most is Brooklyn, obviously. And it's not just because it's the obvious answer, but I'm just thinking of the matchups and, you know, how our defensive rates, there are stretches where we play like an elite defense, and then there are just some stretches where we just forget how to guard, it seems like. And with three dynamic offensive players like Durant, Irving, and Harden, and you think about the perimeter matchups, okay, so you have to put Ben Simmons on one of those guys. You can't slow any of these stars down. Who would be the most likely to have the water kind of shut off? Okay, maybe you put Simmons on Kyrie or James Harden because you literally, as we established, it is factual information that you cannot guard Kevin Durant. So why not put Ben Simmons on Irving or Harden, but then what you you want another perimeter defender in there? Does Thibel get a lot more minutes than he normally would in any other playoff series? Would his offensive limitations be de- well? Yes, they would be detrimental because teams would just play off of him. But you need him on the court for defense. So it, I would even if Embiid to me averages like let's say forty and fifteen, I still don't know how we can keep up with him offensively because. They don't really they can really just play defense for like if you have like three two minute stretches in a game where the Nets really lock in defensively, they get a few steals, deflections, secure a few defensive rebounds. Their offense is good enough to where it just doesn't it, it all they need is just that. And I fear the Sixers just don't have the firepower necessarily to match the Nets. And I think few teams in the league do have the firepower to match with the Nets. But I just wonder, our our billing, our calling card is supposed to be our defense, but we might be one or two perimeter defenders short. And you're never going to stop these guys, but I'm you would at least like a bit more comfort in who is out there guarding them while also not being a liability on offense. So that's my main worry with is the Brooklyn Nets are just, to me, it sounds sacrilegious because I'm a fan, but uh, to me, the way Brooklyn's clicking right now, th- I think they're the favorites. Um, but I, ju- I just fear that Brooklyn matchup, man. Yeah, I think I think the thing with Brooklyn, right, and you mentioned it already, but you would have to play Matisse Thibel. No matter how much you do or don't want to do that, you have to. Yeah. And I think, oh, could that be a huge detriment to the team? Maybe. It, it may tank the team. I think they have enough time to figure it out and make it work. But in reality, you're going to have to play him because Danny Green isn't going to be able to stick to Harden or Kyrie for yeah. the entire Notice the how game. I didn't mention Danny Green. <laughs> well, here, here's the thing, though. He's a right? great team defender, but at this point, he just gets roasted one-on-one. Well, here, here's the other thing, though. We have mentioned they've been really good at playing that 2-3 zone. And I think in a pivotal moment in the playoffs, it might be against the Nets. They're going to pull out the 2-3 zone with Simmons and Thiable at the top of the 2-3 zone. And could Very they be point. the ones 
who create enough turnovers and deflections to win a basketball game that's close. I, I think they could because that defensive alignment where you have Simmons and Simmons and Thibel at the top of the two, three zone with Embiid manning the middle, that's a pretty hard team to play if you're the offensive team, because now they have their stalwart in the middle and they have two guys who are just going to give you absolute hell at the top of the zone. Yeah. Um, and we saw a little bit of that two, three. Well, we saw the two, three zone first against Indiana, but that was without Embiid. And then I think against the, uh, against Phoenix on the road, we busted out the two, three zone with Embiid in the middle and Simmons and Thibel up top. And, it was hellacious. Um, I'm just looking at, I was just looking at the lineup out there and I was like, Oh my God, a two, three zone with those two. Um, so you bring up, that is a good point. The two, three zone is definitely something that they have found in their back pocket that they could pull out. And also another thing they could pull out is the Simmons at five lineups. I have never been a fan of Simmons at the five, just cause I don't think he's a rim protector. And, um, he wasn't attacking the rim on the other end or taking advantage of the matchup on the other end as much, but he's been doing it lately now. And I'm feeling more and more comfortable with Simmons at playing more lineups with Simmons at the five. So maybe that's another thing they have in their back pocket. Um, one more question, and then we'll go on to the question that I ask every guest. Um, is Embiid's improved offensive game, the one-on-one stuff, is that enough to offset the half court fears that we have uh, come playoff time? Um, Rob Mahoney wrote a good piece about how Embiid is bending basketball to his own will, and is mainly because of the face up and the dribble pull up game that he has developed, that he has developed over time. I'm wondering for you, has Embiid showed you enough to where maybe the calculus of our playoff fears could change a little bit? Yes, just because I think. I think a lot of the Sixers conversation, right? You've said this a little bit. You've said it a few times is they don't have a guy who can create on the perimeter. And if Embiid can be that guy, which I think the traditional narrative is he can't be because he's seven feet tall, but he's been that so far this season. So if he can continue to be that, then it neutralizes a little bit more of that need for perimeter shot creator. Now, yes, would you like to have one? Yeah, ideally you'd have one. And if they had made the right moves over the last few years to do that, they would have one. Literally any one move that was just competent, they would have one. Yeah, and so they don't have one currently, and that's their own doing. But Embiid could potentially be enough in that area to win basketball games. And he's become a bit that clutch guy down the stretch, you know, give him the ball, He's going to get you baskets because once you're under two minutes, you don't care how the baskets come. You just need buckets. And he has become a bucket getter. He knows how to get you a bucket. And I've always, I've always said every team needs a go get a bucket guy. If you don't have a go get a bucket guy, you can't win the championship. Like who, who's the bucks go get a bucket guy. I, I don't know. And that's why I don't think they can win the championship. Even the heat last year, right? They had Jimmy Butler, a go get a heat. You're giving them the basketball and you trust that he can go get you a bucket. When it <laughs> the matters. Sixers the year before that had Jimmy Butler. <laughs> exactly. And so the Sixers don't have that, don't have that guy in the traditional sense, but I think Embiid can be that guy. And to some extent, I think Harris could be that guy. Cause he's going to get the worst defender. I think of the three guys and Simmons and bead and, 
uh, Simmons and Beaton Harris. I think he'll end up getting the worst defender. So, you know, it, it's interesting. I, I think his offense might be enough, but it, it's still to be determined. We got to see how teams play him as the year goes on. Yep, we will. That's what that's for sure. We will definitely find out. That's why uh, they play the games, as they say. Uh, so my last question, I asked this for every guest and the last uh, the last two guests. I've had to give this question ahead of time because I've tried it with the uh, the first two guests I've had on and they kind of were taken aback like, oh, wow, I, I have to think about that one. So I had to send this one to you ahead of time. But I want you. You've been all you you follow Sixers Twitter. I'm sure you're on the Sixers subreddit like I am. You know, you see popular opinions, you see consensus opinions, you see debates and civil wars among fans. I want you, Mr. David Arroyo, to give me your unpopular Sixers opinion. What is your one unpopular Sixers opinion? It's funny you you prepped me on this, right? And I, I don't know if I have an unpopular Sixers opinion. Like, I, I've been trying to run through, like, my unpopular Sixers opinions. And the only one I could really come up with, right? Because I have one that's, like, I don't think terribly unpopular. I just think Isaiah Joe should replace Furkan Korkmaz in the rotation. But that, that one's I'd not hot. I'd agree with that, too. <laughs> yeah, see, it's, it's not a very hot take. And so here here's my scorching hot. This is going to really get some people mad who like the Sixers, including yourself, potentially. Oh, I'm I, ready. I don't think Brian Colangelo was as big as a disaster at general manager as people make him out to be. I would actually argue he was a fairly good general manager with the exception of he, he definitely bungled the Fultz trade. I think other than that though, you look at how he played the buyout market. He was masterful in that sense. He did a really good job of knowing what he needed to put around Simmons and Embiid to succeed. And I would say the team was on the right track before he had the whole burner scandal. And, you know, you could argue that makes him a bad GM because of the way he got caught up in that whole scandal. But I I don't think he is as bad of a general manager as people have made him out to be in hindsight. I actually think when you look back at the moves he made, he did a pretty good job. Wow. Wow. <laughs> that that's the first unpopular opinion that made me have an audible reaction uh before i give mine the Fultz trade i would do again a hundred times out of a hundred I, I was would a, not I, I i was a huge Fultz guy um watching him in college i was very high on him i thought he was the best prospect in the draft um obviously so in the- hindsight i wouldn't do it but i the reason I wouldn't do it has nothing to do with with how, it how turned he out. turned out. It has everything to do with Boston was taking Jason Tatum, whether they're at one or whether they were yeah, at three. That is- so there was no – it was like when uh, Chicago in the NFL moved up to take Jimmy Garoppolo or moved up to take Mitchell Trubisky. Yeah. San Francisco wasn't taking him at two, so why did you feel the need to move up to grab him? Like was there another team that was going to move up to one and take Fultz? And then we I took Solomon of- Thomas instead of Deshaun Watson. <laughs> Like I've never heard the, the the what's it called the the other team that might have traded up to get faults. So to me, you could have stayed there at three and still gotten your guy if that was really who they wanted. Now, yes, yeah. hindsight, Mitchell would have been the best guy to get at number one, but he wasn't anywhere on the radar, so I can't even play that hypothetical. Like they could have sat at three and got faults, and that's where I critique the trade. But the asset management of Brian Colangelo is why I think he was a 
terrible GM. Uh, I think the Reddick and I think the Reddick move was a stopgap move. And to me, he made a lot of neutral and negative moves. Um, you know, doing something like trading back into the first round in the uh, 2017 draft to draft Anjus Pesesniks, who was later cut and then later signed with the Washington Wizards. But you basically pissed away a late round pick. You could have drafted Josh Hart, who you worked out. You worked out both Josh Hart and Kyle Kuzma in your own backyard. And then instead you take guys, um, you take, uh, you take, uh, you don't take those guys and you basically just let them walk away. You, we all know the Sixers needed three and D players for the longest time. That was kind of the billing around Embiid and Simmons. And is basically everything from an asset management standpoint. I just never, and at the time too, like I remember when Hinky resigned, I wrote like a huge thing on uh, hashtag basketball, especially after the when uh, Jerry hired his son uh, Brian to be the general manager. I wrote a huge thing on the, um, I wrote a huge thing on Hinky resigning and Brian and my worries about Colangelo basically doing trades where you spend a dollar fifty to get a dollar item right and you know they could have had Kuzma or Josh Hart but then they trade back in and take Pashesnik who didn't pan out at all you sell your second round picks you trade away guys like Sterling Brown and other players who you know second round picks okay do they often pan out no but do I want as many swings as I can to get a cheap impactful rotation player yes I do and I just think from that standpoint Brian Colangelo was an awful general manager you could argue yeah the Reddick moved to help the buyout mark the buyouts um you know mainly Bellinelli and uh, Ilyasova helped helped also but they were lateral neutral moves I don't think Brian Colangelo did anything to uh move the program as uh, that's an old Brett Brown term to move the program forward um I just it's the assets mainly that just get me he basically just lit everything to a fire and I'll never I'll never forget it well so I I agree largely with those criticisms right but in terms of like selling draft picks I I've just always that is assumed an owner. that's an owner thing too. Exactly. I assume that was a directive from the owner. And at that point, you don't really have much say in selling off your second round picks. If the owner tells you that's what you have to do. But in terms of moving the program forward, I strongly disagree considering he played the buyout market, right? Got Ilias over, got Bellinelli and bead goes down shortly after that. But because of the pieces they've added, they go on a 17 game winning streak. And so I think I think we, in hindsight, like to look back and go, well, there were no assets now. He left the cupboard bare. But also, like, he wasn't the one who then made the Jimmy Butler and then Tobias Harris trade. The Tobias Harris trade specifically, I would not have made. He, I, I think a lot of Elton Brand's failings get pinned on brian colangelo oh which elton, i don't trust think me. is fair El- the, the 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 clip is full for elton too i have a bunch of elton brand takes <laughs> um but uh, i could the like i said the buyout and the buyout market and the stopgap free agents 
sure, Brian Colangelo succeeded in that way. Um, he only got one off season. That like it, it's it's hard to fully judge him when he only got, you know, what one full off season, and then he didn't get to finish what he started the following off season. Where again, didn't have a great draft. But, you know, he was out before they even made the Jimmy Butler trade in November. Also, um, what he went into that 2016-17 season with four big men on the roster. And we were all saying that he should trade two of them. And he kept them. And then he traded Jaleel Okafor to the Brooklyn Nets. And we gave – we for some reason, we attached uh, another high, another high second-round pick. It's just – Stuff like it was a death for me. It was a death by a thousand paper cuts. And then brand just came in with the stone cold stunner in terms of just asset burning and then doubling down with terrible contracts. Um, but that is definitely that is that de- that that is definitely an unpopular opinion, sir. So you, you have taken the cake so far. Um, basically, my unpopular opinion would be. Um, I am not, I guess I'm whelmed. I was thinking about it myself too. I'm whelmed by Doc Rivers. I'm not overwhelmed or underwhelmed. I'm just whelmed because I feel like I, I've always been a big Brett Brown defender, but I just feel like Good on you. I just feel like and Doc's a better coach and the, the change was needed. Um, the change was needed. Doc empowered his players more, and that's why they're having good years. I think that's in part why they're having good years. But I just think the reason this team is doing so well is because Joel Embiid is an MVP candidate, and they're shooting in a little bit of dribbling on this team. And I think what Brett doesn't get enough credit for was adjusting as the rosters went along. Yeah, there are some things you could have a gripe with. I wish he did run some more pick and roll, even though he didn't have a lot of ball handlers traditionally. But they went from the shooting lineup with movement and spacing and motion and dribble handoffs with Redick. And then he tried to get the best he could out of a Frankenstein roster with Horford, Harris, Richardson, basically 1,000 power forwards on the roster. And for stretches, there were times, especially at home last year. That's what we forget with this weird, with the weird season we had last year. Um, the, the Sixers were dominant at home, like dominant. And I think Brett adjusted well with the roster that he had. He kind of had to. But I think if Brett was in the same position as Doc, we might not be the number one seed in the East probably which again doc was a better coach and i like the hiring i do think it's a, it's an upgrade slightly but i i just i i don't think doc's the reason why the main reason why the sixers are succeeding this year that's all i i would agree but i also think i think i think you kind of hit the nail on the head like brett brown right never showed you the tools in a big series to to be the reason they won a series. You know, he got outcoached by Brad Stevens numerous on numerous occasions. Nick Nurse thoroughly outcoached him when they played each other in the uh, conference semifinals. So to me, it was time for Brett to go. And I also was a bit of a Brett Brown defender at times, but I, I don't like I, I agree. Like Doc Rivers hasn't been like spectacular or anything. But to me, he's not going to earn his contract and his money this postseason or even this entirety of the season. Now, if they win the championship, obviously, you know, there's going to be a lot to say. But 
I'm kind of with you. The reason they are where they are is because of the moves Daryl Morey made, not because they hired Doc Rivers. He's David Arroyo. You could check out There's a Lot Going On podcast and uh, check us out. Check out all of our podcasts on Blue Wire Hustle. Uh, David, thank you for joining the show and um, definitely planning to bring you on more because it is my podcast and the Sixers are my favorite team. So I have to have a Sixer fan, you know, to come assess the season with me. So don't be a stranger to the pod and, uh, you know, hope to have you on soon. Hey, thank you, and uh, hope to uh, do the same for you on There's a Lot Going On. Of course, of course. All right, thank you, David. Thank you. Did not plan to go on for over an hour and a half, but that's what happens when you have another fan of the Philadelphia 76ers on my podcast. Thanks to David Arroyo for joining the show. We will definitely have him on later on during the season to talk about the Sixers once again. But until then, we'll be going to a few other teams around the NBA. We'll be having a few guests on and, you know, we'll go back to a little bit of the solo format as well. But uh, leave a like, leave a rating, leave a review, help out the podcast, spread the word, all that good stuff. And until next week, deuces. <laughs>